Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Between July 11th and July 13th, 2011, two horrific events took place at the Spreckles Mansion in the exclusive Coronado neighborhood in San Diego. While under the care of his father's girlfriend, Rebecca Zahau, six-year-old Max Shacknai was critically injured after falling down the stairs at the mansion. He lay between life and death in the hospital. Not even 48 hours later, Rebecca was found hanging naked off a balcony from the mansion. Her death was officially ruled a suicide, but was it? This week, we have the honor of welcoming back best-selling author Caitlin Rother to talk about her new book on this case, Death on Ocean Boulevard. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me back. Welcome. This was a fun book to do. <laughs> very, very. This is a phenomenal, I mean, a tragic, but a really interesting case. And Caitlin, you are sort of an aficionado of San Diego crime. But this particular case, I think, has just global fascination for a lot of people. And obviously for you being somebody who's in the San Diego area. So tell us how you became involved in this case and talk about some of the people who are involved. Okay, so I live in San Diego. And so I watch anything that happens in San Diego County, which is, you know, three million people pretty large, geographically diverse and expansive area. And this is actually in a separate city called Coronado. So it's actually not a neighborhood of San Diego, but it's across the bridge from the mainland and it's connected to the mainland by a bridge. And, you know, I grew up in San Diego. I, I left to become a journalist and went to grad school and worked, you know, in Massachusetts. And then I came back to live in San Diego. My parents are here, my family's here. But I've always had a thing about Coronado. I've always liked going there. It's a really quaint, nice place to just take a walk. The Hotel Dell is this beautiful landmark. And so I always watch for cases that happen here. In fact, my first novel, Naked Addiction, it opens with a scene on the Coronado Bridge. So that bridge that connects Coronado to San Diego. And I'm actually writing a crime novel now that has a whole section in it that takes place at the Hotel Dell. So I have a thing about Coronado. It sort of has a place in my heart. But this reason that this case intrigued me is the same reason it caught everyone's attention. And that's because 
Rebecca Zahal, a 32-year-old beautiful young woman with a rich boyfriend who owned this mansion, Spreckles Mansion, which was built by John D. Spreckles of the Spreckles Fortune, you know, the Sugar Fortune. He was the richest man in the county in 1908 when he built this house. So it's when you think of a mansion, it's not like a Hollywood mansion. It's more of a historic mansion. So Jonah Shackney was trying to get it fixed up and he ended up, I guess, putting off some people in town, but he was, you know, well known because he lived in this house and it was on the, the list of historic resources in that town. And so there was a 911 call uh, two days earlier before there was a 911 call about Rebecca being found hanging naked, bound and gagged. There was a 911 call, the same police officers responded. Little boy, six-year-old Max Shackney, who was Jonah's son, took a tragic fall from apparently from a second-story interior balcony. So within 48 hours, you have these two incidents. And when we first heard about it, we heard about this suspicious death of this woman. And then as time went on, we heard more um, about this little boy and how these two events were connected. And so it was a very unusual and bizarre case, first of all, because of the way that Rebecca's body was found. But for me also, personally, my husband died by hanging, and it was a suicide. We know that for sure, back in 1999. So I had this case has haunted me for personal mm-hmm. reasons as well as professional reasons. So take us to July 11th when Max... Shack Nine, what happens that day? Who's there and what happens that day? So Rebecca is there and her little sister, who's 13, she flies out for a visit. And so she's in the house as well. And Max and Jonah goes to the gym after breakfast because he wants to work out. And then the whole group of them is going to go to the beach and to the zoo. So I changed Rebecca's sister's name because she was a minor at the time, but I call her Ariel in the book. Ariel is upstairs taking a shower, and Max is upstairs. He's supposed to be cleaning his room. Anyway, so Rebecca's downstairs in, in the bathroom off the foyer, which so it's a big area, and you walk in the front door, and then there's some stairs that kind of dogleg up to a second-story landing um, and a second floor where the bedrooms are. And then there's a chandelier that's hanging. I know you could... I'm on the radio here, but I'm gesturing wildly. (laughs) I talk with my hand. So um, there's a chandelier hanging from the second story ceiling. So Rebecca is is in the bathroom. She hears this crash. And the dog, her 14-month-old wee mariner, is barking like crazy. So she comes out, and she sees Max on the floor in the foyer. So... There's a broken chandelier lying next to him. There's pieces of glass everywhere from the chandelier. There's a soccer ball and a razor scooter. Now, this little boy is not breathing, and his heart is not beating. And so Rebecca calls out to her sister, call 911. And she gets down, and um, she tells Jonah later that she started giving him CPR. So the the paramedics get there, and nobody sees her giving CPR, but she said that she gave the boys CPR. But by the time they get him back, it takes two shots of epinephrine. And he's finally at the hospital in the, you know, the ambulance takes him to the closest trauma center before his heart starts beating again. So they estimated he was down 
for 25 to 30 minutes. But, you know, initially they thought he was going to, you know, had a chance of being okay because Rebecca said that she gave him CPR. And what is, and when the police, um, so the police arrive at the scene and they take Max to the hospital and, and they let Jonah know. And what is Jonah's reaction towards Rebecca? We don't really know that, do we? So, I mean, is there anger? We don't, I mean, we don't really know how, if there's blame assessed or. According to Jonah, there was no blame assessed. He wasn't angry. Um, he was very concerned. He's, he, I interviewed him eight times after I thought yeah. I was finished with the whole book. <laughs> he finally got in touch with me. I've been trying to get a message to him and it just took a while for him to get it. And, and we, um, so we spoke, I had to rewrite a bunch of the book after I thought I was already but he told me that he didn't blame her and he wasn't angry, but he was very concerned. He didn't want her to come to the hospital because she had had issues with his ex-wife, Max's mother. And so he told Rebecca she couldn't come to the hospital. So what Rebecca did is she spent the next you know, day or two um, ferrying relatives back and forth from the hospital to the airport. Um, you know, as they were flying in to spend time and to be supportive of the family and, and sit with Max in the ICU. Um, but everyone kept asking, you know, Rebecca, what happened? And she kept saying, I don't know. I didn't see it. And so there was some frustration, definitely on the part of Max's mother and Max's aunt, the mother's sister, um, why they couldn't get answers. And so I think the whatever anger and blame there was, according to Jonah, um, came from more from them. But, you know, Rebecca could have um, interpreted the fact that she wasn't allowed to come to the hospital as blame. We don't know that. But she never, she never told, let me just, one, one last thought. She never said to anyone that she felt responsible or that Jonah was angry at her. But what she did say as she got back into the police cruiser, because they took her to the hospital, even though Jonah told her not to come, she said, Dina's going to kill me. Interesting. I mean, I can't even, I mean, Sarah and I have discussed it a lot. I can't fathom the level of, of guilt you would feel from that type of being responsible for the care of a child and having that type of tragedy happening. And I guess we've talked about it because we've had children under our care and you can kind of see how something like that could happen right? in an instant. Right. And, and, it, and I think you'd have to be superhuman not to have some emotions. Or, I mean, also Rebecca was very close to Max, was she not? I mean, she... You know, she really loved him. And she used to take him to different appointments. And, right, that was a lot of, she wasn't working. She had stopped working to spend more time with Jonah. And she would drive Max to his various scheduling appointments and activities, right. correct? Right, yes. Yeah. So Rebecca thought of Max really as like her own son. I mean, even though he wasn't, she kind of became sort of a, took on sort of a nanny role. I mean, she she was living with Max and uh, well, let me put it this way. She was living with Jonah, but Jonah had three kids. So two teenagers from his first marriage and then Max from his second marriage. And he had the kids halftime. 
and they timed it so that all three kids came at the same time. So she was helping take care of them. She did not get along very well with the teenagers, especially the girl, but she and Max got along great and Max loved her and, and she loved Max. Okay. So, so this happens and then, and then another 911 call comes in and this is when things get really strange. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where we, you know, there's lots of different stories and the sheriff's you know, believe one thing and the Shackney family's, you know, pretty much aligned with the sheriff's department in this. The Zahau family is a is thinks the opposite. So Adam Shackney flies in the day before the second nine one one call. He's a tugboat captain from Memphis. And he he's the brother of Jonah. He's the brother of Jonah Shackney, the younger brother. And they could not have more different lives. I mean <laughs> Jonah is this multimillionaire founder, CEO of a pharmaceutical corporation that's headquartered in the Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona area. It's, it was called Metasys, which has since been, he's since sold it. But at the time, um, you know, he was a wealthy guy and um, he had so many accomplishments. It took me pages <laughs> to try to put him in all in the book. He's a really brilliant guy and very accomplished. So he uh, met Rebecca at the eye clinic. So he went in for an eye checkup. She was an ophthalmic technician. And um, anyway, Adam is his brother, who is a tugboat captain. Very, very different lifestyle. (laughs) Spending, you know, 20 days on a tugboat working six-hour shifts on and off um, with a very small crew. So he flew in. Rebecca picked him up the same time that she was dropping her sister off at the airport. So the sister was supposed to stay for a month, but Rebecca said, this isn't going to be any fun for her. And she's got a, she's so busy ferrying people back and forth and Max is in the hospital. So she sends Ariel back and picks up Adam, takes Adam to the hospital, picks up Jonah and Jonah's best friend, Howard drops Howard at the airport. They go to dinner, then brings Jonah back to the hospital where she takes him aside and goes to his room because he's in this adjacent, um, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a hotel for parents who, whose kids are in the ICU, et cetera. It's the Ronald McDonald house, isn't it? The Ronald McDonald house. Yes. Um, so she hugs him for a really long time. And Jonah described that to me that she just wouldn't let go. Mm -hmm. And, and, then she left and she took uh, Adam back to the mansion. Now the mansion has a property where, you know, there's this big house with, you know, four floors. Um, and then there's a guest house, which is separate across a, a small, you know, courtyard where there's a lawn. And then there's a caretaker cottage. And then there's the garage where there's an apartment above it. Anyway, so that's in kind of a, in behind the house from the street. If you look at the sort of aerial view of it, it's sort of more like a compound in some ways right. than like it's, it's, it's got a pretty significant interior yard in it. It's really not, I don't think it's that big. Yeah. But I mean, when you think of, like I said, like a Hollywood mansion or an estate, it's not that big. It's really it's a house. It's a big house. And then there's the stuff behind it. Because remember, 1908, right. um, I don't think they had such ostentatious, crazy mansions <laughs> like they do now. Right. Um, anyway, 
but it is a sizable property. There's quite a lot of square footage. So Adam's in the guest house, which is a two-story structure, and he's in got his own bedroom. Anyway, there's no TV in there, so he says um, goodbye. This is his story. He says goodnight to Rebecca in the courtyard. She doesn't want to talk. She doesn't want him to come in and you know talk about Max or whatever happened. She goes into the main house, and he goes into the guest house. So he there's no TV in there. I don't know why. He has some Diet 7-Up. He calls his girlfriend in Memphis, and he takes an Ambien, and he goes to sleep. And when he gets up the next morning, he it's about 6.15. Uh, so they get back around, um, I can't remember, what was it, 8? Right, 8 or 9 or something like eight, that. Yeah, Somewhere 8, some 8-ish. Um, he wakes up at 6.15 a.m. I remember there's a time difference. And he's feeling a little restless. So he pulls up some porno on his phone and he pleasures himself. Now he volunteers this information to the police afterwards. That's how we know this. He uh, takes a shower, comes out, and he sees this thing out of the corner of his eye. And he thinks maybe the teenagers hung up something as a joke. And it turns out to be Rebecca hanging from a second floor exterior balcony on this red ski water ski rope and she's naked and bound and gagged. So he, um, he doesn't remember the order that he did this, but you can hear some of it on the 911 call. He calls 911 and he goes into the kitchen and grabs a knife because he's going to cut her down. He doesn't wait for the authorities to do this. He thinks, well, um, she might still be alive. So I want to try to cut her down. So he thinks she's too high, so he gets a table, which is in the yard. It's a wooden table, and it's old, and it's been sitting out in the sun, and one of the legs is broken. So he's dragging this table. You can hear this on the tape, and it's going, you know, you can hear it scraping on the brick, and then you hear the leg fall off, and it bounces. You can hear that, and so he apparently stands up on the table, gets the knife, and cuts her down, and he says he holds her against him and then puts lays her down on the grass. Now, this is all on the tape, and you can hear him grunting and cussing. And partway through, you know, the dispatcher's trying to send paramedics, but he doesn't know the address. So in the middle of all this, he has to run either around the house or through the house to look at the front of the house to see the numbers so he can tell them just where to send the paramedics. He's like, send it, you know, where you came to, to yeah. for the kid a couple days ago, the kid. So he, he says, I, I should have started it off with, he starts the 911 call off with, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house. Now, based on what his story was, he was the one in the guest house. She was in the main house. And when I asked him about that, he I said, did you mean the guest room? Because that's where the hanging rope was anchored. He goes, it was a 911 call. That was his answer. Right. Which was a complete non sequitur. So, so let's talk about, um, and this is where things get really, uh, really bizarre. Can we talk about how Rebecca's body was found? Um, because this is where it gets really strange about um, the suicide and the manner in which her body was found because she's found bound and then she's found naked and she's, but she's these, these uh, ropes, she's the 
knots around are, are fairly complex. I mean, when I looked at them, I thought these are pretty complex, a lot of work. To... So this, this is a big matter of debate, just, just, to be, <laughs> yes. just to be clear. Adam, so Adam was, let me just briefly run quickly through this background, but Adam was cleared by the sheriff's department. They said he was a person of interest. They it, 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 um, interviewed him. They gave him a polygraph, which was inconclusive, but they still determined he was telling the truth. So within a matter of a few days, they had cleared him. They'd cleared Jonah. They cleared Dina because they knew Dina was upset and, you know, at the time was blaming Rebecca, actually, and was talking to the hospital um, staff, got them concerned enough to report this whole fall because Max was still alive at this point. Just to be right. clear, Max was still alive. He was attached to machines, but he was still alive when Rebecca was found. So he wasn't dead. Um, he was in a few days later declared brain dead, but these people were all cleared. And um, so anyway, the sheriff's department didn't see this as a crime. And in what they say is that these knots around her wrists and her feet, her ankles and her feet were bound together separately. Her hands were behind her back, first of all. And so when Adam cut her down and laid her on the grass, she was left in that position all day until about 740 when the medical examiners, people finally came all day naked in the sun, which was wow, I not, that. Yeah. yeah, and there were news helicopters flying over and they pixelated, but you could still see she was lying there naked. There were neighboring kids who were up, up on their roof looking down at her and everything. So, the, you know, when the family found out about that, they were pretty horrified. But anyway, um, point, you got point very is, quiet just for a sec. I'm so so sorry, Caitlin, hang, okay. hang on. Uh, yeah, it just got very quiet wow. there. Now, I'm just, it, it really, Astounds me that the police showed up on that scene and did looked. Did you want me to finish? Did you, did you yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. About the knots. That's. I was yeah, oh, yes. I, I, I apologize. That's okay. It was a little no, long-winded. I just wanted to give you the background, though, because I can't. I can't accuse anybody of a crime. There is no crime according to the sheriff's department. I don't want any of us to get sued. I just. So I'm just trying to be sure. fair to everybody. These knots, according to the sheriff's department, were simple, but. My point is, she was contorted when he put her on the grass. She was in this contorted position, and the dispatcher said, "You know, you, you can start compressions." And when you look at the position she was in, it would have been very difficult to do compressions properly. But he's and she says, "And count out loud." And he goes, "27, 28, 29." And he's been talking to her this whole time, so I don't know where the twenty-seven came in. But he claimed that he had been giving her compressions and was about to do the mouth to mouth. And he took that thing out of her mouth. So there was a gag, which was a T-shirt. And so my point in all this is, you know, the knots were tight enough that she was still in this position. It wasn't like they just came off. And then during the trial, um, the house sued him uh, for wrongful death. And during the trial... This is a civil trial, civil a subsequent trial. Civil, civil trial. trial. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, civil trial. The the Zahau's knot expert said what you did, that they were very complicated knots and very elaborate. And the defense, however, claimed that they were very simple, that even a bird or a gorilla could tie them, that they were just slip knots, just super, super simple. Um, and they did a, the sheriff's department did a, a video 
showing how a female deputy could tie them in front, tie, tie these loops essentially around her wrists in front of her, slip one of her hands out, put it behind her, and then slip her wrist back in, tighten it. And that's what they said Rebecca did. And the, the house knot expert said, no, these are not the same knots that I saw tied on her. Because I agree with you, when the knot expert for the Zahaus did the demonstration in court of how he thought the knots were tied, they were, to me, I wouldn't have known how to do that. And frankly, Adam even told me that. He said, I really didn't agree with my attorneys saying that because they didn't really explain how those knots got tied. I didn't know how to tie those knots. So there's, that's what I mean. It's a very long-winded, complicated answer to your <laughs> question about the knots. Let, let me, the, I think, can we just take a, a quick pause right now? Because I think part of the reason, I'd love to just talk a little bit about Rebecca, her mindset in the days up to this event, but also some of her history, you know, who, you know, let's talk a little bit about Rebecca, because I think in all fairness, you know, she is a person who, this case has garnered so much publicity, I think, because she was very, very beautiful, you know, but what was her background? What was some of the things that you found during your investigation about Rebecca? I mean, but she was not just some, you know, she spoke six languages. She was, you know, so, so bring us a little bit, you know, tell us a little bit about Rebecca and, and, you know, about her, okay. you know, her as a person. Sure. Um, one of my goals in writing this book was to really flesh out who Rebecca Zahau was because, you know, her family said she was very religious. She went to Bible college. Um, she was strong. She was happy. She would call her mother, you know, weekly and they would sing hymns. And it, this is just not something she would have ever done to herself it, to embarrass us, to embarrass anyone, you know, to humiliate herself in this way, you know, outside, you know, I, what people say public, it wasn't public, it was outside because it's a private courtyard, but it was not, you know, inside in a closet or something. I mean, when people generally hang themselves, it's over a door, they step off a chair, it's one to two feet. This was nine feet, two inches, and she was naked and gagged. And I mean, why would she do that to herself? And they couldn't see it. And so none of None of her friends who called the sheriff's department, the people, you know, at the at the memorial service, her entire family, and even Jonah initially thought that she wouldn't have committed suicide because she was a considerate person. Jonah told me, I, I couldn't understand, you know, well, he didn't tell me this, actually. He told detectives this because it's on tape and I have those interviews. But what he told me later was that he thought she did commit suicide, so I should be clear about that. But you know, her family was putting out this this picture of her, which was very different from what, you know, Jonah told me later. I interviewed also Michael Berger, who was another former boyfriend of, I'm sorry, uh, um, yeah, former boyfriend of hers. And then there was also, I had access to an interview um, with her ex-husband. So taking all these different stories, you started seeing that she was telling her family one thing her husband, one thing, Jonah, one thing, Michael Berger, one thing. And these were completely conflicting stories. So she put on a different face to different people in her life. So 
I wanted, you know, and I didn't know that. And I, no one knows that really, because people have had so much sympathy for her family that they've just taken what her family has said. And these other people have not been speaking publicly about it. Um, I did these interviews for my book. So now it's in the book. But during the trial, Rebecca was painted by the defense as an impulsive, unstable, very troubled woman who committed suicide. And so they put out these little snippets that made her seem, you know, obviously they wanted to paint a sharp contrast to what the Zahows were saying. So I wanted to go deeper than that. And and what I found is, you know, this was not a secret that she had, she was arrested for shoplifting. The story that she told Jonah was completely different from what turned out to be in the arrest report that I got a hold of as part of my research. That didn't come out in court either, that that was in contrast. Um, but what did come out was that she told her family that her husband had abused her physically and verbally. They played a deposition, some snippets from him saying, no, he denied that. So right away you have a contrast. And I'm wondering, well, did he or didn't he? He says he didn't. Um, when she was with Michael Berger, she disappeared one day, didn't go to work and called Michael Berger up and said she was living with him at the time and said, I've been taken. And he said, where are you? She says, I don't know. They've got something over my eyes and she's crying and she keeps calling back. He reports her as missing to the police. And so he thinks she's been kidnapped. And, and it turns out she's with Neil, her ex-husband, <laughs> and she doesn't want to tell Michael Berger, mm -hmm. that she's breaking up with him because Neil is making her break up with him because they're still married. And she told Michael Berger that she was going through a divorce. So, you know, I'm starting to see these these behaviors of her, you know, which were brought out in court, but only just little snippets just to raise the question, you know, to support Adam's um, defense. So I went deeper into all those areas and I found that she was a much more complicated person than I think her family knew. Um, and, and I'm not saying that she was a bad person. I think she must have had reasons for telling people these different stories. It sounds like she wanted her family to support her relationship with Jonah. So she made it sound more serious and more committed than it when, mm -hmm. when it actually their relationship was in big trouble. And there was a lot of conflict. And Jonah said to me that if, you know, it didn't, it didn't really bode well that the way things were going, they probably would have broken up by the end of that summer. Because of all the tensions with the, the tensions kids, with the kids and yeah. the ex-wives. Right. So it turns out that Rebecca was a pretty troubled person. There were also some notes on her phone that she wrote, which are, you know, the kind of thing that you do when you're angry at someone, you write a letter, right. but you don't send it, that kind of thing. And they were, she was angry at Jonah. She was angry at Jonah for not supporting her, but rather supporting his kids when she's arguing with them, um, taking their side and not hers. He didn't want to have any more kids. She, she kind of did want to have a child, and she was not sleeping. She was crying all the time. I mean, these were in these notes on her phone. Right. She didn't tell her family any of that. So, and, and even though they know these notes exist, they still see her as the way that they always did see her. Very interesting. It's very interesting. It's just complicated. It's and I think all I mean, I think aren't we all complicated? You know, if 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 you know, I mean, all of our lives are have complexities and we put on different faces for different people. But what really amazes me, and I think, you know, 
like you, you know, Sarah and I deal with a lot of law enforcement officers and it, it just astounds me that law enforcement showed up and saw that, you know, saw her body in that manner and said, this is a suicide. You know, it's just, it's amazing. They didn't do that initially. So but you mean, it just amazes me that it was okay. Yeah. Maybe you can speak to that. <laughs> Keep in mind that these were the same officers initially right. that had responded to the Max 911 call two right. days earlier. So they saw she was upset. They saw what happened to that little boy. And this was the Coronado police now. So Coronado police is not the one that did the investigation into Rebecca's death. They immediately called the sheriff's department because Coronado has no crime. The most common crime in Coronado at that time was bicycle theft. So... They were not experienced right. in this kind of situation. So they immediately called the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department sent in their homicide unit because it was a, clearly a suspicious death. Right. So it took them seven weeks, and then they said it was suicide, just to be clear on the timing. But I should also say that by getting into those interviews with Rebecca's uh, ex-husband, for example, which was four days after Rebecca's body was found, the detectives were already telling him that they pretty much cleared Adam, Jonah's whereabouts were accounted for, Dina's whereabouts were accounted for. So it sounds like they had decided actually pretty early on. And right, because they were, they were waiting for the toxicology results to come back. Because they don't search Adam's phone, do they? They don't search. No. They don't search all of that. I mean, it's not like they serve search warrants and, you know, do all of these, you know, so they don't know exactly what Adam was watching that morning. I mean, this is all what Adam tells them, but... Right. I also wanted to point out, too, that the night before, she receives a 52-second voicemail from Jonah. She's given some pretty devastating news, according right. to Jonah. So can yes. you okay. talk about that a sure. little bit? So the sheriffs do get the phone records for Jonah. You would think that with Adam being the only person on the property besides Rebecca, that they might get his phone records, too, to back up his story, but they don't do that. But you can see on Jonah's phone records, and they get Rebecca's phone records. Okay, so there's a story line as well, which does check out based on Jonah's phone records. Adam texts Jonah right after he calls 911 and he's done with them. He texts his brother. Jonah's in the ICU with Dina and Max, and he doesn't respond. So Adam calls him. And so that's all on the phone records, right? Chronicled right there. What's also on the phone records is that Jonah left a voicemail for Rebecca at 12.50 a.m. And it was a 62-second voicemail. But we don't know what that voicemail actually said because it was deleted. Now, we can't prove who deleted it. They didn't also check fingerprints or DNA on Rebecca's phone. So we don't know if there was a killer his or her fingerprints could be on the phone, but they didn't check for that either. Well, we figured it was her phone. It would just be her fingerprints. That's what they said. <laughs> but we have the phone records. We do know there was a voicemail. We do know how long it was. We do know it was from Jonah. Um, we do know it was missing. They tried to get a copy of it, but they, well, they couldn't get into her phone. I guess maybe there was a password or something and they, they couldn't get into her phone. And then they tried to get it from the provider didn't get it from the provider, but according to Jonah, so this is what we have is Jonah's word. He called her and said, he told me he was crying and he was upset that he'd gotten some news from Max's doctor that the best case scenario 
was that Max would never walk or talk again. And would she please call him back? And what he told me when I interviewed him was, I really wish I had just said, will you call me back? So Jonah thinks that this was the pre, now thinks that this was the preemptive call to make her commit suicide. That's what the sheriff's department ruled pretty much, that she felt guilty. And then this phone call, this voicemail pretty much sent her over the edge. Mm -hmm. And that's what they think. So Jonah said, I wasn't angry or I wasn't blaming her in the voicemail. I was just upset. Being a private investigator, you, you know that I am. I always think evidence, evidence, evidence. Me think, too. Good, good, good. So taking Adam out of the equation, just purely from a crime scene point of view, there are things about Rebecca's death that I think don't stack up from an evidentiary point of view. One of which, the big thing for me, is the fact that her hyoid bone has been snapped, which is consistent with it, with stranglings usually. Yeah, she had fractured cartilages. Yep. It wasn't a severe neck injury is the point. So it would have been from that. If you are dropping right. that, she was, what, 110 pounds or something in 5'3". She's not a large woman. But if you are dropping nine feet down, you are at minimum going to have what's called an internal decapitation, which is the head separates from the neck, but it does not come off. And that's pretty much what the, the house experts testified to at the trial, which mm -hmm. was if she dropped down and she did it herself, she wasn't lowered she probably would have either partially or completely been decapitated. Yeah. Just so our listeners know that the Zahao family later sued for wrongful death when there wasn't a criminal charge. Yes, yes. Right. The other things were, though, that she also had four subgaleal hemorrhages on her scalp. So Dr. Cyrilek, who's this renowned forensic pathologist, he did a second autopsy. He also testified at the trial. And between those two statements, he actually strengthened his position, initially said, this looks like it needs further investigation because it looks like she was hit over the head four times and strangled, <laughs> not hung, at least changed the death certificate to undetermined. And then later at the trial, he said, I think she was murdered. I think she was manually strangled and then possibly lowered down because her neck wasn't broken. Like you said, she also had two separate ligature marks on her neck. So why would you have two and not one? So maybe one from the strangulation and one from, right. the, from the hanging. And then the other issue was there were some imprints on the, they, they didn't make this much of this during the trial, but I've talked to some other experts. There were some toe prints supposedly that they said were on the railing, but there were a couple other outside experts who said, you know, there's really only one toe right next to the railing. And it looked like she probably had to, if she did this, she would have had to hop. Now, how are you going to yeah. hop and be on one toe and somehow get your 100, 110 pound body over this railing and not break your neck, et cetera. So that's on the suicide side. But there's also a bunch of unanswered questions that don't make sense on the murder side. Okay. So number one, why are only Rebecca's fingerprints and DNA Right, I was going to ask. On the knives, on the paint tube, 
Now, during the trial, there's a house attorney said, well, there were no fingerprints at all on the paint tube that was used to paint the message on the door. She saved him. Can you save her? Which is a whole other topic. But that's not true. There were, in fact, unusable prints on the tube. So they couldn't identify whose they were. There were none that were in totality identifiable because he was saying, well, everything was wiped down, you know, including the paint tube. But that's not true because there were some prints on there. So that right. was that was factual error. He also had experts who said the reason that there was only Rebecca's fingerprints and DNA is because there were at least 12 places where there should have been DNA or fingerprints found where there wasn't any. And therefore, it must have been wiped down. And then the defense says, well, but you can't selectively wipe right. away one person's DNA and fingerprints and leave just Rebecca's because how would you see them do that, <laughs> right? Well, so, could have been using gloves. Well, well even... Yes, and, they, and that, that was yes. the theory. But the wipe down thing, I'm saying, didn't really... Right, happen. yeah, that in, I found that interesting do, too. Do you think the way the scene was processed in terms of, of collecting the evidence was thorough enough in terms of how they collected, where they collected? Was it comprehensive enough to be able to determine? I'm going to leave this to the experts, but what the experts have said was, according to the Sheriff's Department crime lab people who testified, this was thoroughly investigated. There were more DNA samples taken than usual Mm. in a case. However, several items which had mixed profiles and some amounts insufficient or, you know, to positively ID, but they weren't Adams. And they did not test those again more recently when they had the opportunity, because after the civil trial and when there was a verdict, finding Adam Shackney responsible for Rebecca's death, the Zahouse, you know, wanted the criminal case reopened and the sheriff's department said, well, initially they said, we're sticking to the suicide finding. And then because the sheriff is in an election, his opponent said, well, if I'm elected, I'm going to reopen this case. Right, yeah. so, so the sheriff agreed to do a review and he'd be done in four months, but it took nine months after he was safely reelected. And during that time, they could have retested the items. I asked them why they didn't. And they said, well, we just determined that it wouldn't matter. Well, according to the DNA expert who testified, there are much more sensitive techniques today that those insufficient levels And those mixed profiles, maybe they could have found something because if it wasn't Adam and it wasn't Rebecca, well, then whose profiles are on whatever items those were? I can't remember if it was the knife or specifically remember, but here's a couple other things just to get to your other point. Another outside expert said they used only one swab to take DNA from the door where the message was written. It's a big surface. Why would you only use one swab? It gets saturated you wouldn't be able to see a second profile because you would have so much of the first. Why didn't they use several swabs, just as an example? And and let's talk about that message on the very cryptic message on the door. She saved him. Can you save her with no question mark? What's your gut feeling about that? That sort of was read as the quote unquote suicide note in the sheriff's finding. Mm. What are your thoughts on on this message? Well, so the sheriff's department doesn't even really want to interpret what it means, which I think if you're going to say it's a suicide, why won't you explain why you think that note is a suicide note? (laughs) They say, well, there's no way to prove it, so it just would be conjecture. 
I'm like, well, okay, well then conject. I don't know if that's a word. (laughs) (laughs) But some other experts who looked at the handwriting and the manner of the overall crime scene, including the note, outside experts have said, well, it looks like somebody was very angry. So she was left, her body was left in this humiliating, demeaning kind of uh, state where she's bound and gagged Mm -hmm. and naked like that. If she did that to herself, then maybe she was angry. And that was a private message that only Jonah would understand, something between them. So I asked him about that. I said, he goes, yeah, I've heard that theory, but I don't know what that would be. And I said, well, did you ever watch movies or, mm-hmm. you know, have any, was, you know, I don't remember how I asked it delicately, but I said, you know, his brother thinks it's Shibari, which is a sexual, artistic, Japanese self-tying kind of practice. So his own brother is saying that he thinks it's something sexual. And Jonah is saying, well, we never did that. He said, not with me. So let's talk about uh, one of the three knives that were found at the scene. And the handle was found to have Rebecca's DNA. And I think if I'm not mistaken, on all four sides of the handle and the Zahau's attorney at the civil case believes that that was vaginal blood and that the the shaft of the knife was used to penetrate Rebecca because she was actually on her period at at that point. Okay, there's a lot here to... Okay, yes, I know. (laughs) I I, I, unpackage. Yeah, please please unpack it for us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have a steak knife, which is essentially what this was. This was a matching set of knives that was in the kitchen in a kitchen drawer that Adam took one of the same knives to cut her down with. And he left that outside on the grass. And during our previous DNA conversation, what we didn't mention was that his DNA was also missing from that knife, which we know he admitted to using. And the ropes. And the rope. (laughs) And the thing that was in her mouth where he said he touched and he said he started to do breath too. So why wasn't his DNA found on her? possibly because she was left in the sun, okay? And so was the knife. But the fact of the matter is his DNA wasn't found anywhere. So what I always like to say is none of his DNA was found because why was it? I mean, we know it should have been at least on some of these items. Right. And it wasn't found. So the steak knife had Rebecca's DNA on it. And if you look at pictures, there was a reddish stain. Each of these knives had... I think two rivets. It might have been three, but I can't remember. But definitely in this case, what matters is that there were two because according to Keith Freer, who's a house attorney, there was a reddish stain up to the second rivet. Now, there also, according to his expert, who used to work at the crime lab, there was also this whitish discharge. And so she was on her period And so the expert thought that that was vaginal discharge mixed in with her menstrual blood because the only thing on her that was area that was bleeding was her vagina because she was on her period. There was one other little cut on one of her fingers. And to me, it looked like a rope burn. But I spoke with the woman who processed the scene and she testified and she said it was still oozing but probably not enough to put it all over that the knife. Now, mm-hmm. the house claim 
Does the House attorney claim that it was on all four sides? I don't know that's true or not, but that's what they claimed. It, you couldn't tell. And so when they asked this woman from the crime lab, she said she didn't have any pictures to refresh her recollection, but that she didn't really notice that. So anyway, the, what the Zahau's attorney is claiming is that this, here's the scenario. She's in the shower. Rebecca's taking a shower. It's a glass-walled shower. She drips blood in the shower because they found drops of blood in the shower. They don't find any drops of blood elsewhere until it gets to right where that message is painted on the door. Then there's some drops of blood dropped on the carpet. And then there's also a towel. I don't think it was a bath towel, like a big enough towel. I don't remember how big it was, but it's a towel. Maybe it was big enough that she had it wrapped around her. This is their scenario. She had her phone. She had the towel. She's standing in one place to drip blood. And they say, well, there was some kind of confrontation. And Adam, um, it must have been sexual confrontation. And Rebecca tried to get away. He grabbed her, hit her over the head, strangled her. And in the process, knocked her partially unconscious so he could tie her up. And then there was another knife which also plays into this whole scenario, which was also found in that bedroom, which was more of, I think of it like of a chef's knife. And her prints were found on the blade, but in a weird position so that the only way that they could see that why her fingerprints would be in that position is if she were trying to cut herself free because they were like holding the blade away from her where she would have been sawing kind of against the, the ropes, but there's no cut marks on any of the ropes. In the course of all of that, they claim that, that Adam took this steak knife, which was lying on the floor in the guest bedroom where her hanging rope was anchored, and, and took the handle, the wood handle, and stuck it inside her and assaulted her with it. For what purpose? I don't know. But that's what they're claiming, because there was no bleeding wound enough to put blood on the handle of that knife. And... The medical examiner's office says, well, there was no trauma, no sign of sexual assault, meaning no semen found. But does the house say, well, that knife handle isn't going to cause trauma. It's like the size of a tampon, and it's not going to cause any trauma. You're not going to be able to tell. So the only reason that he would do that is because he's a sexual pervert deviant. And But here's the thing that got me. in During the, the trial, the defense's DNA expert who worked at the crime lab previously said, well, we took oral swabs and vaginal swabs, and they should be equal, the amount of DNA. And the oral swab had, I can't remember the exact numbers, but hundreds of times more than what was found on that night. Therefore, by the numbers, they should be the same, and they're not, which basically, I thought, really lessened the impact of that theory, because if there should have been more DNA on that handle of that knife, if that were really the scenario. Hmm, but that just that got lost on the jury. <laughs> I think what I think the most, I mean, I think, uh, you know, even with all the evidence, I think the most impactful thing about this case and is really the humiliating manner in which she was found and how difficult it is for most of us to imagine. I mean, I think especially women doing it, doing something like that in that manner, you know, that I think if she had just been found, the, the nakedness, you know, be, being, na- being nude, being bound, menstruating at the time, you know, Absolutely. the whole, the whole yeah. manner. I mean, we've, we've had other cases with suicide and just so different. 
you know, people more uh, expecting people to find them, setting up in that consideration and just the real raw, humiliating, exposed way she that is just very difficult. I mean, I actually can completely understand being suicidal after the events that happened. And had she just been found hung, I don't think there'd be any question. But the ties and the and the gag really throw me. But I think even just from a, I agree with that. I think even just from a practical point of view, she has to have gotten out of the shower, written this cryptic message, whatever right. that meant for her. And maybe, and you address it in the book, that maybe can you save her is... Perhaps that is a religious thing. Perhaps it is, hey, look, I'm going to take my own life, but I don't want to go to hell kind of thing, possibly. But the way in which the way in which she's tied up, then ties it to the bed, she's going to hop naked to the balcony. And there's no know, drops of blood, by the way, between and there's no drops the hallway of hallway and the railing. So there's no right. drops of blood anywhere in the bedroom. So Which right. makes, doesn't make any sense if you're right. hopping around. And why would you bind your feet? This is another thing that makes no sense to me. <laughs> why would you bind your feet? Well, see, I, I have a theory about the drops of blood. If the steak knife was inserted, I think that could temporarily change the drops of blood coming out, possibly. I don't think it would block it. It's I, not... I, I you did. Know. I the pictures that they showed. It wasn't like clumpy, lots mm-hmm. and lots of blood. I mean, it was no. pretty faint. And did they ever prove conclusively that that was menstrual blood? I know that they can test for menstrual blood versus. They did not test specifically if it was menstrual blood. That was another thing they didn't do. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But so we don't know if that's from a finger. Let's say. Well, the sheriff's department pretty much is willing to concede to that point that it's probably menstrual blood because she was menstruating and there wasn't really any bleeding wound. And the thing on her finger, it wasn't a fresh cut. It wasn't fresh blood. It looked like it had already started healing. But by the same token, it also kind of looked like a rope burn to me. I don't know. And that wouldn't bleed that profusely, I don't think. Right. Like like the woman said, it was oozing. Right. So oozing is not spurting, not a lot of blood. But the thing thing is that the whitish discharge thing, I go into this in the book a little bit. I was really curious about that because they did this whole fingerprint thing first where they put it in it. I learned all this information. This is great. They use this super glue thing where they, they put the item into this, I don't know if it's an oven or whatever it is. They spray, it's like a not fumes, but like a mist, like they do a super glue kind of coating, you spray it and let it settle. And that's how they can look at the, for the fingerprints. But they said so they, they swabbed it for DNA first, then they did the super glue misting thing, and then they did DNA testing again. And I'm thinking, isn't it possible that the whitish residue was from the super glue fingerprinting thing? I mean, it could be you. You right? bring that up. You bring that up in the book, and I think uh, it's a very interesting right? point. It would Nobody depend on said that. I was like, I hey. mean, if the handle of the knife is taken, if the photograph of the handle of the knife is taken in situ on the crime scene, but if it's taken later, yeah, then, sure when it was you taken. Know, I, yeah, that would be the question. I, I think I don't know where it was taken. But, but to get back to the suicide scenario, I mean, so she would have to do these fairly intricate binds on her feet, get her hands behind her back in these sort of figure eight, fairly complicated 
So you have to pull it to tighten it. It's a slip knot. So theoretically, she could have pulled it with another. I, I, I'm doing it behind my back, the by the way. It does show the thing is she is clutching a piece of the rope in her hand. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll post some. We'll, I mean, we won't post anything graphic, but we'll post some pictures on our site of the knots. Maybe we'll just try you can, to. You can yeah. go to the sheriff's website and they're still up. If you want yeah, no, I, I actually looked okay. at some today because okay. I wanted to really get a good look at them. And I, I was pointing them out to Sarah as I looked at them again today. And I was just like, this is, I was really kind of astounded. At how, I mean, it just well, seems like a real lot of work. I mean, it just seems very, very complicated. Well, I didn't take a position in the book and I'm not taking a position now because I'm not convinced that it was a suicide. I'm not convinced it was a murder. I don't have enough information. They either, either way. So I think I, a lot of people feel that way as well. What I, what I will say is that it was staged. It was a homicide staged as a suicide or a suicide staged as a homicide because all I, as we're discussing, all these things don't make sense for one I, I agree with you. I fought with Laura about it this morning. That, it, I, I, and I said, hey, it's not, you have suicides that are staged like homicides. Absolutely. To, it, it's the, I've read it, books about that before. It's, before it's, this the, one. it's the ultimate... <laughs> I'm going to screw with you. I'm pissed off. Yeah. And I'm going to screw with you. She doesn't, she won't. Well, I just don't think, I don't think Rebecca would, would be screwing with them in this situation on that night. I just don't see the motive for it. But look, I think that's why we wanted to have you on, why this book is so fascinating. <laughs> and everybody really can debate it. That's that exactly. Well, that's what we really would love to hear is from our listeners. You know, we would we've been encouraging. We'd love you to get the book and then tell us what you think. Tell us. We want to hear what you think. Yeah. Yes. What, what, what do you what evidence gets you? What about this case really grabs at you? And, and like, what are your thoughts? Like, give it to us because we're all really and maybe you pick up something new in the book and bring it to our attention and, and we can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because this really is kind of, and, and that's kind of why I love this book, because I mean, in a way I don't have closure, but in a way it kind of keeps the fascination going. With, and this case with, may not be over. There's a second lawsuit that the Howes have filed now against the Sheriff's Department. They're trying to get more records because they want this case reopened. And they think that the investigation was flawed and that they are holding stuff back. And maybe if they get some internal documents, investigative, I don't know, not necessarily investigative documents, because I think I have all those. But if there's any kind of communications between right. detectives that maybe not all of them thought it was a suicide, I don't know. They're still trying. There's a hearing in July. So we'll see well, what happens. And according to them, it's why they conducted a civil case in the beginning, because they could not get any right. kind of answer from the sheriff's department in terms of reopening the case. Well, and that's why the civil, I mean, that's why people utilize how, you know, the civil case. Honestly, this is just a fascinating case. I have a theory, which I'm not going to talk to you about on tape. So I want to field it with you. But Lots of you know. theories out there. Yeah, oh, I know. I know. But it's, you know, anyway. Yeah, and we really do. We want to hear We want to hear everybody's theory. And I think this we could have, you know, some fun with this on, online and, and hear what people's ideas are. And, and I want to throw uh, this out, too. Because COVID has made promoting this book and selling this book so difficult, I had to do a complete virtual tour. I did one in-person signing. I sold a bunch of books, but one time, it was only after I was fully vaccinated. I am offering, if you have 15 people, at least 15 people, or you want to put two smaller groups together as a book club, I will do a 30-minute Zoom discussion with people if they all promise to buy a book. <laughs> 
and I have questions that I've prepared for book clubs. You know, I think there's like six or seven questions that I'll be happy to send them. And then they can talk after I leave. And they can have a great discussion after reading the book, after listening to your podcast. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm just throwing that out because that's the great thing about zoom. I can talk to anybody anywhere in the U S without having to be there. So I'm throwing that out as an option. I think that's oh, I think fantastic. And I think our listeners. Me. Yeah, well, yeah. I, oh, we'll definitely set that up. And I wanted to just follow up and ask, does the house win the lawsuit and they win a wrongful death against Adam? What was the judgment? So Adam Shackney was found responsible for Rebecca's death. He immediately and his attorneys immediately said, oh, we're going to file an appeal and we're coming back. This is crazy. I've never seen such an mm-hmm. injustice and wrongfully convicted. In the meantime, it's in my book, but there were negotiations going between right, the right. attorneys trying to, to settle before this, and neither side wanted to settle. The lawyers were trying to settle, but the the plaintiff and, and you know, there's a house in Adam, but neither one of them wanted to really settle. So they couldn't agree on anything. And But the insurance company that was representing and paying for Adam's defense. I mean, his brother Jonah is very wealthy and was helping, but the insurance company did pay the majority of it and they didn't want to keep paying. So they settled with his house against Adam's wishes. Initially, the the amount didn't come out, but it was $600,000, which doesn't seem like that much money because they had initially been asking for 10 million. So the house took it and that made Adam really angry because not only had he been found responsible for a crime that he said he never committed, labeled him as a sexual deviant, et cetera, you know, it's ruined his life and he's very upset and very angry about it. He now has no chance to clear himself in court because there's no chance for appeal now. So he's, he's still pretty upset about that. But it sounds like this is just going to continue and this house are not stopping their accusations. They're still going after him. Caitlin, this has been such a pleasure and I'm so excited about this book club idea and to get input and feedback from all our listeners about this case because I just feel like people are going to give us more nuggets of information and things to discuss. Absolutely. So, this is one of these cases that you could just... You know, you can just keep... I mean, You can go talk into the biggest rabbit hole about this <laughs> ever. No, it's true. I went down some, trust oh, me. I, I can only imagine. Now, how do our listeners get your earbooks? And is it available on audiobook? What what is, oh, yes. Where, yes. where can we get this? Okay, so this book is available anywhere where you can buy books. And I always suggest, please support your independent bookstores. Yes. Um, it is available online. And if you want a signed copy, I can direct you to, and, and you don't live in San Diego, you, you live on the East Coast or wherever, you can go to my website. I have a virtual tour calendar on my blog. And it has a link to the San Diego Public Library bookshop, and I'm signing books and they're shipping. So if you want a signed book, that's where you can get them. But if you just want a book from anywhere, you can buy them anywhere. And yes, it's available in audiobook. It's also ebook and and it's a trade. Oh, I can't show you trade paperback. <laughs> oh, great, and we we have our copy right here. Yes, one, one, one of our copies right here. One yeah. other thing I wanted to mention, yeah. even though yeah. your listeners can't see this, I have. A short memoir as well called Secrets, Lies, and Shoelaces, which is the backstory, my story, that I used, my experience with my husband 
that I used as a lens to examine the evidence and and the behaviors in of Rebecca, you know, and my husband, and compared them because I did see some parallels. Um, I'm not trying to diagnose Rebecca or say she committed suicide. I know my husband did. He was diagnosed as a borderline personality, having borderline personality disorder. He was very depressed. He was a chronic alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera. So she didn't have the alcoholism or the addiction. She had never been diagnosed with any depression or anything. But I, you know, the lying and the stealing and the the kidnapping story and et cetera. So there were some parallels. And if anybody's interested in that, you can get that on Amazon or through me directly. That is not in a bookstore. Thanks again, Caitlin. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I just want to say that you guys are one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, thank you. I know you guys are relatively new, but I really appreciate your enthusiasm and you you do your homework and you ask good questions. And so I just want to give you those kudos. Thank you. you. That means a lot. Great job of promoting too. So that's (laughs) thanks, Caitlin. Murder, murder, murder.